So the book of 1 Samuel has a number of just wonderful literary devices, a number of wonderful characters and plot lines. It really is a treasure. And First and Second Samuel really were just one book when it was originally written. It was just called Samuel. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, until about the 14th or 15th century, it was just one book. The latest copy we have where it's split is in the 14th century. Not that it's that important for us this evening, but the point is that from the beginning of Samuel to the end of it, the author was just a master at putting plots, stories, motifs all together in a way that was unique even in its day. There was, it was another three, four, five hundred years before something this magnificent was written by any culture that we know of. I'm a little biased. But it's also the inspired word of God, and that's precious. So the story starts with Eli's failure and the rise of Samuel, and then Israel's failure to listen to Samuel and the rise of Saul, and then Saul's failure to obey the Lord and the rise of David. And by the end of Samuel, we have David and God. Even in the midst of David's failures, he's still the man after God's own heart. He still loved what God loved and hated what God hated by the grace of God. So where are we now in the story? David is on the rise. He's just killed Goliath. Saul is on the decline. He's rejected by God because of his rejection of God. So we're seeing kind of at the same time Saul's decline and David's rise in this story. So, David was a shepherd. A shepherd who becomes a king. After he's anointed by Samuel, he's pulled from the flock to be anointed by Samuel. And if you remember, I think it's kind of the the pivot point of this particular story. 1 Samuel 16, 13 states that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The very next verse. And the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And don't get all bent out of shape that a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Who do you think torments those in hell? It's not Satan. This is just the just judgment of a holy God against someone who has rejected him completely. Saul rebelled against God. God rejected him as king and lifted up the shepherd from Bethlehem. And this is going to work itself out in the rest of the book of Samuel. We see increasingly the tragic deterioration of Saul in his kingship and really in his mind. He seems to go crazy. But we see an equally or equally, equally Excuse me, spectacular rise of David, the shepherd. But David only points to the true king. That's the title of the sermon, the true king. We're going to look at the true David and true, the true friend. Of course, David's a type of Christ. This is the first point, the true David. David is a type of Christ. He gave Israel a glimpse of what the Messiah might be like. He points all of us 
to the unity of God's word, to the majesty of God's redemptive plan. Of course, David was a very sinful man, but he did point to the coming of the Messiah in some important ways. David was a shepherd boy who became a king. Think about this. Jesus was a king who left his glory in heaven and became a boy and later became a spiritual shepherd to his apostles and now to us. And I love to think about the life of Jesus. Everything we need to know about Jesus is in the scriptures. But Jesus did a lot more than what is in the scriptures. John says in John 21 that if everything were written down that Jesus had done, the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So I'm not going to speculate, but I am going to point out some things that seem rather obvious based on what the scriptures tell us. And I'm going somewhere with this, so hang with me. Imagine Jesus growing up, learning to talk, learning to walk, and his parents are doing what with him? They're teaching him the scriptures. And at a very young age, he knew that he was a special boy. He knew that he was the son of God. At a young age, how do, I, how do I know this? Remember at age 12, his parents left Jerusalem after the feast, but Jesus wasn't with them. And when they found him in the temple, what did he say? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? That sounds odd for a 12-year-old child. He knew something already. He knew that his father was the almighty God. So the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, Jesus in His divine nature being the second person, I mean, in His person, He's the second person of the Trinity. The Spirit of God illuminating the Scriptures perfectly to Him. The Spirit of God who inspired the writers of Scripture to write all of Scripture about Him. Not every single verse has something about Christ, of course. But you remember on the road to Emmaus, he taught them everything that was written about him in all the scriptures, all the Old Testament. The Psalms, the prophets, the law. So imagine Jesus pouring over the scriptures and the Spirit showing him perfectly what it all meant. That it was about him, his life, and his mission. The Holy Spirit instructing him in all things in a in a perfect knowledge, and a perfect wisdom about his Father and about his work. And knowing Scripture so perfectly and the intent of the Scripture and the typology of the Scripture and the redemptive plan of the Scripture, I can only imagine he's drawn to David. I can only imagine that he reads this narrative that we're reading and says, Ah, David, David meant to point to me. In my father's plan, this was pointing straight to my life. Indeed, Jesus knew David. You say, oh, you're going off the deep end. How did Jesus know David? You remember in John 8, 56, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. How did Jesus know that? He rejoiced and was glad. How did Jesus know that? Jesus knew Abraham. 
And when they got angry at him for saying such a thing, his response wasn't to back away from it. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus knew David. He knew Abraham. He knew Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Joseph. He knew all of his people. There's certainly some mystery here, and I don't want to get get into too much of this, but it's just amazing to think about. You know, Jesus, when he wrote the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, do you remember he identifies himself in almost the last verse of the Bible as the root and descendant of David? Fascinating that he would still identify with David. And Revelation was written to a Gentile church. And Jesus is identifying with the man that we are studying. So there's something there. There's something special. We can't comprehend the perfect union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. The hypostatic union, it's called, is a mystery to us. But we know what the scripture teaches. And we know that he says he knew Abraham. And I believe he also knew David. He knew that David's blood ran through his veins. He knew that David was the shepherd king. And who knows, this inspired his heart to be the great shepherd and redeemer. David was the shadow, of course. Jesus is the reality. I think Jesus loved David. Of course he did. David is going to be with us in glory. But Jesus is the true and better David. So when Jesus is reading this, who knows? We'll have to ask him when we see him. But certainly the same spirit that inspired David, that rushed upon David, lived in him. So I think that's all I'm going to say about that. Jesus certainly is the fuller fulfillment of everything that David was supposed to be, the king. But certainly, I mean, in your own life, don't you wonder who your ancestors were? And if you know ancestry at all, if you know how to do genealogies, you, you only get little snippets of that person. Like, oh, well, we all are related to some king somewhere back ten generations ago. All of us are somewhere. And you look at that king and you're like, oh, wow, that's pretty neat. Who was that person? You have no idea. What made him tick? I don't know. Nobody knows. Why do they succeed? Why do I like studying them? You don't know. Jesus knew David. He knew everything about him, knew what made him tick. And he knew that David was a shepherd And he knew that he was the good shepherd. Jesus himself, the shepherd king. The true David. So David, as we read about him, all through Samuel is a type of Christ. I think I'm going to keep mentioning this because it's special. Um, There are different types of Christ found throughout the scripture. David just seems the most obvious in your face type of Christ. Indeed, Jesus quotes much of David's writing at critical times in his life. So David is just a type of Christ, and 
Jesus, of course, is the true David. Okay, the second point. Let's look at the text itself. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. These people were friends in a very special way, in a very close way. Their friendship was a true friendship. This was important. It was important for the time that David lived, that God did this thing to knit Jonathan to David's life in this special way. Why is that? God is confirming through Jonathan's friendship his own anointing of David to be the next king. Jonathan is the heir apparent. He is the crown prince. When Saul is dead, Jonathan is expected to rise up and take over the kingdom. This is the way things work. I couldn't help but think as I prepared when Queen Elizabeth passed away, all the speculation, you begin watching and the news is like, is is Prince Charles going to get passed over and are they going to go straight to William or maybe, you know, to William's son? Everyone's wondering, who's coming next? It's something we still think about. It's something we still care about. Jonathan, the crown prince, loves David as his own soul. And they have much in common. David had just struck down Goliath. He had risked his life in an amazing way. He put his faith in God and went out to fight. He achieved a great victory in the power of God. And he was a shepherd. And he was young. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jonathan had done something very similar. These are both courageous men who trusted God. And this very person who should have been the most threatened by David, by this newly anointed replacement king, Jonathan, the son of Saul, he's actually drawn to David. God knits the soul of Jonathan to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him. That's what the Scripture says. Instead of being threatened by him, he loved him as a brother. I think this says something about friendship in the church. True friends are gifts from God. All humans desire friendship, and in God's common grace, he grants some measure of friendship to everyone just because he's a loving God, a kind God. But only Christians can be knit together in the way of Jonathan and Saul. Sorry, Jonathan and David. This is a special gift. What makes it different? The Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and I have the Holy Spirit living in me, there is a, there's a connection thicker than blood. We have the same Father. We have the same Savior. We have the same salvation, the same inheritance, the same purpose, the same citizenship. The same family. And yet the fact remains, friendship is not our right as a human being. It's not our right to be born and have friends. It's a gift, a blessing from God. Just as God knit the soul of Jonathan to the soul of David, it's my prayer that God knits our souls together in this church. 
And if you ask God for godly friends, I believe he'll answer this prayer. Why wouldn't he? He's promised to make us a family that would love each other. Calling us brothers and sisters in the household of God. These godly friendships are more than just sharing a common experience in church together or growing up together or spending time together. They're intimate friendships because we share a common God. Have you ever noticed this phenomenon? You haven't seen a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ for years. But you know you've had fellowship with them. And then God brings this person in your paths to cross one more time. And it's like that. It's in an instant. You're like, oh, I feel like I just saw you yesterday. What is that? It's a gift from God. It's a little, a little just taste of heaven. Certainly this happens to some degree among the unredeemed as well, but it's nothing like the deep Christian fellowship that God gives us by his spirit. If you desire to, to be friends like this, then pray that this is something God gives you, deep and lasting friendship. Why wouldn't he answer this prayer in his own good timing? But secondly, I would say like Jonathan, be a friend. Be a sacrificial friend. Commit to doing life together. As we said this morning, be transparent with each other. Share your lives with each other. For the other person's good and not your own. Pray with them, serve them, invest in them. Be hospitable with them. Be generous. Act like Christ acted with the the apostles and really everyone. But it also, I think, comes with a warning. If your best friends right now are not true Christians, then that's a scary formula. And I don't mean people who just say they're Christians or they go to church. Everyone around here says they go to church. Everyone around here says they're Christians. But I mean real believers. Well, how do you know? Well, when you're with this person, what do you talk about? Do you talk about Jesus Christ? If not, why? Do you pray with this person? Does this person pray with you? Does this person push your heart to Christ? Or is it all worldliness? Do they even love Jesus? If the answer to all these questions is no, you should be guarded. This should not be your intimate friend. The relationship should be evangelistic. You should be friends, but only to the point of trying to share the love of Christ with them. But to open your heart to someone who's clearly not serving Christ, to yoke your heart with an unbeliever is a terrible formula for disaster. The best thing you can do, obviously, is to pray, to pray for them. But God has called his people to be part of the family of God. We should strive to be good friends to everyone in this room. We should strive to sacrificially love each other and give thanks to God for real friendships that you do have it's a blessing if you have I think one or two really close friends in your life praise God for that but in this church certainly this is a safe place to be friends we're people who seek your good and not your harm We're blessed indeed to have each other. It's a gift from God. 
And this text shows us what good friendship looks like. First, I recognize that it's a gift from God. It's a knitting of one heart to another by the Holy Spirit. God knit the soul of Jonathan to the soul of David. Praise God. May that happen with us. So much, and it's repeated twice, that Jonathan loved David as his own soul in verse 1 and in verse 3. This is a work of God. Jonathan was so committed to David that they made a covenant together. And this is a solemn promise to love each other, to protect each other until death if necessary. That's a close friendship. Reminds me of, uh, certainly it's much different, but you see in old westerns where they'll make a, a covenant promise and they'll cut their hands with knives and mix their blood as they shake hands. Like they're blood brothers. Kind of signifying that they're always going to be with each other. They're never, gonna, never going to reject each other. Then in verse 4, something remarkable happens. Jonathan says he, It says that Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. So Jonathan is the rightful heir of the throne and he gave up all of his garments to David, all of them. This is a genuine act of brotherly love. But it was more than that, an acknowledgement that God had ordained that David would be the king. David would be the next king, not him. In symbolically taking his clothes and giving them to David, he's saying, you're the king, David. After Saul, it's you. It's not me. He gave David his own robe. You remember just a few chapters before this, we read that Saul and Jonathan were the only people in all of Israel who even had swords. He gave David his own sword. Robes in the book of Samuel are just used magnificently to, to reflect spiritual realities. And I'm just going to touch on it quickly because it's not the main point of the text, but I do want you to see it. The writer of Samuel uses the robes that you see throughout the book of Samuel to show what God is doing in raising up and putting down leaders. So when you see the word robe in Samuel, ask yourself, is there a leader that's being raised or put down or something going on? Remember in 1 Samuel 2, it's the first time we read about a robe. Hannah, who's Samuel's mother, had just dropped Samuel off, the boy Samuel, the little baby Samuel, just weaned Samuel, four or five years old, whatever, little boy. And every year we're, we read that she would make him a little robe and take it to him each year that she went up for the yearly sacrifice. The robe was a symbol of Samuel's blessing in this role, a rejection really of Eli, who was failing in his service. And yet Samuel wore an ephod as a child, and this robe was a symbol of his service and his approval by God. By contrast, in 1 Samuel 15, we see again that Saul grabs this robe that Samuel's wearing. King Saul grabs the robe and it tears. And Samuel says to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is far better. The next time we see a robe is here. Jonathan recognizing that David is the rightful king and he gives him his robe. As a symbol of that acknowledgement, he renounces his own claim to the throne. 
So we see David being raised up. David first went to war as a shepherd, wearing the clothes of a shepherd, and now he will be fighting in royal robes. So this robe is symbol of God's favor and blessing. And then in 1 Samuel 24, we'll see later that Saul is trying to kill David. He goes into a cave where David happens to be hiding. David cuts a little piece of his robe. And then he's grief-stricken that he's touched the Lord's anointed. He's touched the reigning king. And he confesses to Saul what he's done. And here the royal robe symbolizes that David is not going to take the kingship by force. He's going to trust the Lord to bring him to the throne in his own good time. So all that to say, robes are special. So when we read that Jonathan gives David his robe, it's something special. Something is being done by God. And it's being reflected in this event. They're drawn together. They're friends forever. Until death, they remain friends. And we see that Jonathan... Godly Jonathan is sensitive to the will of God. He wants God more than he wants his own reign and rule in the land of Israel. So I want to conclude with just a quick look at discipleship. True discipleship. True service to God. Because that's what Jonathan shows us. It's a pleasantly surprising and really delightful plot twist. If you're reading a book and the plot twists on you, it's kind of fun. And this is kind of what we see here. No one expects Jonathan to come to David's side, to renounce his own claim to the throne in support of David. He didn't fight for what was his at all. He humbly accepted God's plan. He was a man of God. So I think it's our tendency to look at worldly success and think that worldly success is directly related to God's favor. And there's a straight line there and there's no other way to see things. That's not the case. Jonathan didn't see things that way. For him, God's will wasn't bound up in his view of a successful life rising to be the next king. For Jonathan, God's will meant loving Yahweh with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. And wherever that led him, that was fine. What humility we see in Jonathan to submit to the will of God. This is hard. It's hard for us to do at times as well. We know what we want, but what we want is not often what God wants. And this is reflected in his providence and we grate against it. Jonathan did not do that. Jonathan wanted, above all else, to follow hard after Yahweh. He was what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and World War II martyr, would call a true disciple of God. In the cost of discipleship, Bonhoeffer writes that Christian discipleship can tolerate no conditions that might come between Jesus and our obedience to him. To set our own terms for Christian service success or happiness or kingship, contentment, family, whatever that thing is, that your own terms for serving God is to cheapen God's grace into something really that's 
not Christian at all. You see, for Jonathan, the grace of God in his life was costly. He sacrificed something to follow hard after God. And if you remember, he continues to follow and serve his father, King Saul as well, as faithfully as he can, even to his own death. This was costly for Jonathan. Bonhoeffer writes, Costly grace is that treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his whole life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his Son. You were bought with a price. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. This all sounds intimidating to me as a Christian man. It's God's word. Certainly it's right. All Bonhoeffer did was quote the word of God and put it all in a paragraph. But the reality is that God who called you is faithful and he will do it. If this is your desire to serve God in this way, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. So like Jonathan, I want to challenge you. Have you done everything to grab a hold of the pearl of great price? Or is this something you want to negotiate with God? Well, I'll serve you this way, God, but please don't ask me to do that. Or I don't want to give up that. Or that thing might be too hard. Do you want to negotiate your own price for grace? I think in all of us, there's a little bit of that attitude. And I'm challenged, and I'm sure that you are too, to want to desire the right way to live. We all want that thing that we read about in God's Word. We want to serve God with that kind of commitment. And if you don't think you can do it, pray. Don't despair. Pray to God. He won't disappoint. Turn to Him. Like the man who beat his breast and said, I, I'm not worthy to be called your servant. Or the man who told Jesus, I believe but help my unbelief. All of us should turn to God with that attitude and pray that we could be like Jonathan. We could be all in. Not holding anything back. So for all who trust in Christ alone for salvation, who have come to to the cross in repentance, aware of your own wickedness and sin. Remember, he's not going to turn you away. If you have faith in Christ right now, he delights in you. So there is a challenge, of course, to live for God wholeheartedly. But there's also an acknowledgement that God loves his children. And it's a love that's never changing. It's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That's his love for you if you have faith in Christ. He will not turn you away. Like Jonathan did for Jacob, 
For David, he will love you as his own soul. Let that sink into your, to your heart. Just as Jonathan loved David and God knit his heart to David's, so God will love you as his own soul. He'll give you his royal robes. He'll knit his heart to yours by the working of his spirit. Jesus, who's your Lord and King, will call you an adopted son and a purchased slave, but more than that, he'll call you his friend. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have indeed purchased us with a price. You've called us to live for you and you alone. You've called us to sacrifice all that we care for and all that we desire to serve you. Lord, we pray in our hearts there would be no idols. We pray in our hearts that you would protect us from temptation. We pray that you would inspire our hearts as you inspired Jonathan, as you inspired David to love you and serve you with all that they are, with such confidence and trust in you that we might walk through this difficult life, this difficult wilderness journey on this earth with the confidence that you are with us. Your spirit has rushed upon us as it did upon David. And from that day forward, we are yours. We pray that you'd be with us. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.